Um, we all have weird associations that affect our view of God that we can't get out of our head. My uh, grandmother had that blue tint. Does anyone remember that? The blue tint that older women of her generation used to keep their white hair from yellowing, you know? And it's a tricky tint to get right, you know, too little and you don't get the brightening effect and too much and you get this like blue hue. Um, and so my grandmother had overdone it when I was visiting her one day and she was out in the backyard hanging clothes on the clothesline, you know, that was a thing. Uh, when a blue, I, I kid you not, a blue jay dive bombed my grandmother's blue hair. And I will never forget her startled scream or especially her little grandma dance, which I'd never seen before. It was all very delightful. It was like a, a great moment. Yes. Um, the thing is, the only physical form that the Spirit takes in the New Testament, so far as I know, is a bird alighting on a person. So for some reason, I just can't get the blue jay dive bobbing my grandmother's cough out of my head when I think of that. Um, and then there's um, the other image for the Spirit, in case you didn't recognize it, we're in a little series on the Holy Spirit. There's um, a new name, uh, a unique name that Jesus uh, gave to the Holy Spirit. This is in the Gospel of John um, in the discourse uh, preceding his crucifixion. It's a lengthy section uh, of John, deeply theological, and he named the Holy Spirit in that section um, with the Greek word paraclete which sounds a lot like parakeet. Uh, <laughs> and we all know that par parakeet is a member of the parrot family, um, the talking, squawking birds, the annoying, picking up language and, you know, mimicking it back. And they come, you, if you get one, they come home from the pet shop with a warning that they have been known to attack little kids with their hard little beak, sharp beaks. And so it's easy, I think, for our image of God to be closer to parakeet than paraclete often. Um, so paraclete, as I think we've mentioned recently in the, in the Greek, the New Testament was originally uh, written in a koine, a very simple form of Greek that was used throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, that term is translated in the Gospel of John in various ways. Probably the primary way is uh, advocate. Uh, the Spirit is an advocate and that, that sense of advocate is advocate for the defense against accusations. It's a, somewhat of a legal term, and that really evokes the Hebrew term for evil, which is hasatan, um, more famously the Satan, or the accuser, just literally means the accuser. And hasatan in, in the Bible is not so much a proper name, uh, although sometimes um, that figure, if you will, is personified in the Bible, but it, it's very ambiguous. It could be an office or a fun certainly a function or a force or something. Um, the, the reason being that at the core of the Hebrew experience of evil, remember the Hebrews are a, an oppressed people, at the core of their experience of evil was accusation. So like the paraclete is like the anti-accusation serum. The other famous or uh, common translation of paraclete in the New Testament is consoler or comforter. And this is where uh, this term is introduced in the Gospel of John. 
If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that's paraclete, to help you. So another. So like he's a paraclete, he's going to give another paraclete to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him or know him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him. And remember, in Jewish understanding, that's like an intimate connected relationally term you know him for he lives with you and will be in you I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you all this I have spoken while still with you but the advocate the Holy Spirit <laughs> whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you peace I leave with you my peace I give you I don't give as the world gives don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. So you can see all the emotional language around this term paraclete is consoling, comforting, I'm defending you against accusation. Uh, he's really laying out a, a, what for many of us uh, is a radical revision of our image of God. That he, he's saying that God in a sense is sent to us to bind and heal the wounds of accusation. And that's not a normal way for us to think about God in our just popular imagination, especially in our internal psychic imagination. Um, so let's just think about the influence of accusation in our world on us personally. The, the wounds of accusation are universal wounds, right? Let me just uh, paint a few scenarios for you, give you a sense of how pervasive this is. You're a mom with an uh, autistic uh, adolescent son. And you know the experience of going into Kroger or Myers or wherever it is with your son, and you get the stink eye every time that your son does like different gestures or diff different vocalizations that are threatened, viewed as threatening to people who don't know uh, your son or don't know his particular form of autism. It's the, what does the stink eye say? It says, what's wrong with you? <laughs> or that you're not controlling your son or what's wrong with your son? You know, not too long ago, um, autism was blamed on cold mothering. Cold mothering. Can you, um, my, my sister has an autistic son who's now 30 years old and can you imagine living with that medical opinion thrown out by people who don't know what they're talking about that autism is caused by cold mothering oh my god scenario two um i was laid off i had a teamsters job when i was young uh, in in 1971 uh, there was a recession and i had to apply for food stamps for my then very young family. And oh my gosh, the process was so uh, demeaning. It just, it, from the physical environment to the neon lights, the, you know, all the people you were applying for food stamps with had a job and you didn't. And it, it was like, you know, bureaucracies are naturally dehumanizing to begin with. But you, you were, I swear, you were made to feel it's your fault that you need the food stamps. And you're already beating yourself up for needing the food stamps in the first place. 
What was that congressman who said not that long ago? If we can get the, they were proposing getting the sick out of, you know, and put it into their own insurance pools. If we could get the sick out of the insurance pools, then those who are healthy and who have done things right and have, you know, and you know what, then they won't be penalized. You know, like we're here to, you know, justice is not penalizing the people who have done things right and the sign they've done things right is that they don't need health insurance. So accusation, it's just like it's everywhere. Uh, scenario three, a little more um, personal one for me. My, uh, this is my, my wife, Julia, and maybe you can apply this in your work setting, even though hers uh, it was a church setting. Um, Julia was the choir director at St. Clair's, our, our host church here, for I think 24 years. And um, at the, toward the end of her tenure there, she... Um, the, the church lost the priest who had been there for many years in a, in a very traumatic way. It was a really messy kind of a situation. And so that's always hard on the remaining staff. And so the, Julia was like the longest standing, like the key remaining staff, had a lot of face time with people because she was the choir direct, director. She was much loved and, and you know, uh, influential. And so the, the interim priest, they sent an interim priest to be here like for a year to kind of let things settle down. And the person they sent was very insecure and was and this is kind of a natural dynamic that the new priest was threatened by the existing staff who had more of the influence and whatnot and th this woman just made life miserable for everyone and she literally on her last sunday with the parish over there i just the the the, the thought of st clair's the sweetest people in the world you know like chronically nice people uh she actually quoted to the congregation, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I am retaining your sins. <laughs> I'm shaking the dust off my feet as I leave you. And <laughs> later, um, later, some parishioners came uh, back to Julia and said, you know, that interim told me horrible things about you and I didn't know what to think. And, you know, imagine that, you know, it leaves you with the feeling that, well, who else believes horrible things about me and what are the horrible things? And, you know, these few people have come back to me and kind of admitted it or acknowledged it. And to this day, if, if Julia mentions that, that little episode, you can just see the, like, the, the, the hurt so it's pervasive, the effects of accusation. If you've had an abusive spouse or if you've gone through a messy divorce, uh, the, the, the psychic pain is often the pain of accusation. Um, accusation is at work in every form of abuse. So the, the, uh, the abuser always uses accusation as a way of, uh, of exerting control, of manipulation. Um, you know, at, at, at a larger scale, when a woman is called pushy, you know, or, you know, uh, the B word, or, you know, um, uh, overly aggressive at work for speaking up in a meeting in a slightly forceful way, a trait that is celebrated in men, you know, they're assertive and bold and, you know, visionary thinkers when they do that. It's, that is a form of control by accusation. Every oppressed group is subjected to accusation from the oppressive power stru structure and that um, accusation is a form of control. Um, accusation is everywhere human beings can be found. Um, so no wonder in Hebrew thought it's 
at the core of the spiritual mystery of evil reflected in this term, hasatan. Accusation is what puts the creep in creepy. So what are the, the specific wounds, of the injuries of accusation? Well, there's, first of all, loss, loss of reputation, which for as social a species as we are, you know, could be the loss of anything up to and including your life, loss of reputation, um, loss of friendship, loss of uh, community, um, internalization. This is a particularly pernicious wound of accusation, the tendency for the, the accused to internalize the accusations that are um, surrounding them. We internalize the voices of accusation, you know, the stories of the, you know, the, the much maligned nuns in the 1950s, you know, you know, using the rulers and all that kind of, or the parent who's, you know, um, hypercritical. We internalize uh, accusation as a voice and we carry it around and it just does its stuff from inside of us. Um, the burden of a kind of hyper-scrutiny with which you have to live your life if you're under accusation because you're, it's like molasses, you know. So you have to work extra hard to kind of like demonstrate that you're a decent person. And so you put yourself under a kind of hyper scrutiny all the time. Am I, you know, am I really doing what I need to be, to be doing to, to rise above the, the, the weight of the accusation? So this, this, is, a, this is a big, big deal. And Accusation is the gift that keeps on giving. So when, you know, when accusations are circulating about you, they're often like whispered or, or they're like, um, they come with like veiled threats. So, you know, like I know this about you, but I'm going to leak this out or whatever. And if, if you're in a situation in which accusation is kind of like coming your way, if you speak up in defense of yourself, you often look more guilty, right? Because the accusations are kind of like indirect or they're under the surface. And if you say, hey, this, ouch, this hurts, um, at least you will uh, tend to suffer the social pen penalty um, of like m looking angry or hurt or defensive, which in our culture is like, no, let's be chill, be cool, you know. Um, you know, I've noticed that uh, when I was first reading the New Testament, in some of the letters of Paul, Paul was surrounded by accusation all the time. And in certain of his letters, I, I think of Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians especially, um, he's, he's objecting to this. And he's defending himself. And he's expressing his hurt at these unfair accusations. And he looks really like creepy. He looks wormy. He looks like, it's like not dignified. And I'm like, oh, Paul. Uh, Jesus sometimes, if you're reading in the Gospel of John in particular, por portions in John where Jesus is defending himself against accusation, and you just want to say, look, rise above it, Jesus. Rise above it, Jesus. You know, Obama rose above it. Can't you rise above it? But he's just like, he's just like you know, put it out there. So it's a classic, darned if you do, darned if you don't, to be under accusation. Jesus was subjected to wide-ranging accusations. You see the, this, uh, hints of this in direct um, evidence for it throughout the Gospels. Um, this, this is from uh, Matthew 11. John is interacting with some folks who are upset with him. And he says, for John, John the Baptist, John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking, and you say he has a demon. 
The son of man, is a term for himself, came eating and drinking, and you say, look at this uh, uh, glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now it's clear, he, he was accused of like being, a, being an alcoholic, a drunkard, a you know, loose liver with the peop who people he uh, hung out with. Uh, it seems that he was under a cloud of accusation uh, about um, perceived violations, perhaps, of gender uh, and or sexuality issues in his culture. Um, quite a few little um, uh, pieces of this throughout the gospel. He, he was an unmarried rabbi, uh, at the age of 30 or so, which would have made him suspect, like, why aren't you married? Like, rabbis were supposed to be married by that time. Uh, when he talked with a woman at the well in John's Gospel, chapter 4, he, he did so alone. And he was breaking um, either gender or possibly sexuality norms by doing that, especially because he was a single rabbi. Um, he bore the stigma of uh, what was called mamzer status. In, in, uh, I think mamzer is an Aramaic term, the language that Jesus actually would have been his native tongue, a variant of Hebrew, as the term for bastard. Um, in Aramaic. It was super shameful in that, in that society. You know, it was known that his mother was, um, was someone who bore Jesus and Joseph wasn't the father. That was kind of like a rumor that was spreading that was widely known. And, and that, so she was a loose woman and in that society that would have like reflected on the children as well. Um, there's that leader named Simon who hosted a public uh, dinner for Jesus and, and Simon was scandalized when a, a woman of ill repute uh, kind of broke through and came to the feet of Jesus who was the celebrity of the, of the hour and bathed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair which, you know, the touching of, of a woman's hair, you know, even in our society, but especially in that society, that was a sexual gesture. And the leader was objecting because Jesus was allowing it to happen and wasn't stopping the woman. All this was like a cloud of accusation, suspicion over the explosive issues in that society of gender and sexuality. Uh, Jesus was accused of law-breaking, um, especially breaking the Sabbath. And the Sabbath law was like what differentiated, it was the command that differentiated the Jews from the pagans. So it really played an important role. Um, he was accused of lacking proper credentials to be a rabbi in the, in the uh, first place. He was like, a, uh, what's that movie with, uh, uh, you know, where the guy's an airline pilot, but he's not really an airline pilot and all that stuff. Yes, thank you. Um, he, he was from Galilee, which is kind of the Hicks. He, he, he never received formal training as a rabbi and not from any of the recognized uh, master rabbis. So he was like, but he was popular. And th this was all bad, <laughs> bad news. He was accused um, of the greatest taboo in his religious culture, which was blasphemy. I mean, that's like a life-ending kind of charge. Uh, what really got him crucified is the accusation, I think uh, Joshua uh, Zulig put me onto this, regarding the greatest taboo in Roman society, which is the crime of sedition, of fomenting uh, rebellion. Um, last thing about accusation, just so that I think we can have a sense of how we practice it as much as, as we are under it, 
um, we foist accusation on others to the unconscious mechanism called projection. This is, projection is a big part of scapegoating. I think Emily talked about the scapegoating in the Leviticus, where the, the, the Jews were to, or the people of Israel were to put their hands on the scapegoat and actually like transfer their sins onto the scapegoat. That's a very simple physical picture of the psychological mechanism called projection. Projection is when you see something in others that bothers you about yourself, but usually unconsciously. So you see it in other people. You're kind of worried about it in yourself, but not consciously. And so you see that trait in others, and then you, whoa, you come down hard on them for it. Someone who lies a lot will call other people liars more frequently, not to make any social commentary of the day. Um, and frequently citing no evidence, but just throwing it out there as an accusation. But it's an unconscious mechanism, and sometimes it's a defense mechanism against our own buried voice of self-accusation. So if we had a, like a rough upbringing and had a lot of accusation or a lot of pressure, we might, you know, uh, use that as a defense mechanism. Um, so, <laughs> two nights ago, um, Julie and I watched TV and um, this Visa commercial comes on that I've seen a few times. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, most people don't watch commercials, but I feel obligated, you know, because it's free TV, and so you've got to watch the commercials to, you know, I don't know. No, I don't really, but... In this commercial, there's two hipster entrepreneurs who are like crazy. They're crazy successful. Like, you know, if you just start up a company, you're going to be crazy successful. You're going to have like a really nice offices. They're going to have glass walls. You know, everyone around there is going to be like 31 years old. And, you know, there's these two guys. And one guy's got like the two-day growth of beard. He's tall. He's handsome. And uh, he, comes into, he comes into his buddy's office who's working at the computer. And he says, they're playing Saturday night. His buddy answers, where? He says, San Francisco. His buddy says, we gotta go. And then they whip out their visa and they hop on the plane to San Francisco and then they get into their cab and it drops them to the, you know, gritty club where the cool new band is happening, the sound of the band. They're like, yes, you know. My reaction to that was so strong, especially given that it was a commercial and not real people. I said, who does that? That is gross. What upper class BS. Yeah. Then I just had to like laugh at myself because that week I had, I had gotten, um, my son Jesse is a big U2 fan and we've been to like four or five U2 concerts together. He was taking his son Colin. I was going to go and taking Julia who didn't, She'd heard about the band U2, but she did not know a single U2 song when I first met her. I was like, we, this, we're, we have to fix this. So, we're, so um, Jesse got the tickets. He knows how to do all that stuff. They're in Pittsburgh. The tickets cost $128 a piece. Um, I got a good deal. Okay. Uh, they're general admission tickets. Like the day before, I say, Jesse, what's the plan? He says, well, we got to leave at 8 in the morning. It's a four-hour drive. And then they're general admission, so you got to stand in line to get decent, you know. So that's like five hours standing in line. And, and then it's the, the concert's like five hours. The Lumineers will be there at 6.30, and then we're standing up. And then you two will probably come at about 8 o'clock, and then they'll be getting done. And, like, and then we're, we're going to... I'm like... I would pay someone $100 not to have to use these U ticket, two tickets. You know, it was horrible. I walked away from two U2 tickets. 
The next day, Julio told me that you two had expanded the tour and they were going to be at Ford Field. And when she, she was online and everything. She calls me up from work and says, oh, they're on, online. It was, you know, she thought it was Monday coming up was the deadline, but it was last Monday, so the tickets were flying off the web. And, you know, and so I, I went online and I look at the tickets and I'm watching as this section closes and that section closes. And I'm one of the, on one of these third or fourth party sites to buy the tickets and I, and I, and I buy two tickets. I'm so embarrassed about how much money I paid for those tickets with all the extra costs and whatever, but I added up in my head and I thought, those two guys in the commercial probably spent less than that flying to San Francisco for their little, <laughs> you know, band. And I was just beating myself up over that. And I thank John Etter for, we had a conversation with this and he, he was my mini therapist for this moment. <laughs> I was beating myself up over that. And I don't do this all the time, but I, you know, but I was dealing with that and, and to offload that psychic pain, I just, I just projected it onto those poor, sad guys on the commercial. <laughs> They're probably actors, starving actors, and that's their only gig. And, they, you know, they're living in Manhattan in somebody's closet, you know, and I'm yelling at them, who does that? That's gross. What upper-class BS? So I was projecting accusation at those guys generated by my own self-criticism that was gnawing on me. So this is a big deal. Why would Jesus want the disciples to know that the spirit that he is sending as like to replace the personal presence of God as he goes off and is crucified and is risen and is ascended. Why would he want the disciples to know that that spirit is the paraclete? And why would it stand out so much because he chooses that moment to say, to give, to lay out this new name for the spirit, which is like a new name for God. Because, you know, accusation triggers the scapegoat mechanism that we've been learning about and Jesus is in the process of unmasking it and the thing about our relationships that makes them dangerous, not life-giving, is this scapegoating tendency we have and accusation is such a key for that. And to enter the kingdom, we have to leave that behind but we have to experience God differently in order to leave that stuff behind because it's a defense mechanism we use. Remember Jesus talked about Satan a lot. It's kind of embarrassing honestly how much Jesus talks about the devil and especially using the term hasatan because he saw the mystery of evil as accusation. He saw what it was doing to human beings and the cycles it was, uh, negative cycles it was setting loose among us. The spirit that Jesus is sending is supposed to interrupt that, that vicious process and radically revise our vision of God. And I, I think to radically revise our uh, religious vision of God especially, and it would probably take another another whole sermon to talk about how we'd use this religiously and relating to rules and law and all that. But even closer to home, it's important to remember Jesus experienced God in this way. Jesus himself experienced God as a defender, not an accuser. And he wanted to pass that experience on to everybody.
He wanted everybody to have that experience. And it wasn't like he said, if you're as good as me, then you get to experience this. He wanted everybody to have this because he was going through this whole uh, cosmic ritual, so to speak, to release the spirit in a new way on humankind. So let's set up our time for uh, reflection and uh, meditation. I got that to that a little earlier, but I'm going to take longer to set up the meditation here. Um, first, I'd like to... We, we do take a two or three minutes of quiet reflection at the end of the sermons here. And um, it doesn't have to be, you know, like perfectly quiet and we're human beings. We make noises and there's little kids. And so it's a time of quiet reflection. And I want to offer um, some words and visual images uh, that you can work with in this meditation time if you'd like to. Um, so later in John's Gospel, from the text that we've been looking at, which is John 17, I think. Later in John's Gospel, John 20, the, the newly risen Jesus startles his fearful disciples who are huddled in a, in a closed room, and he startles them by showing up. <laughs> and after the initial startle, it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So it's like, you, I almost picture him blowing on them breathed on them and said receive the Holy Spirit so we're going to use that phrase receive the Holy Spirit or receive the Spirit in the meditation and then that image um, is, the, uh, is an image of the Spirit as breath but for our meditation I'd like to suggest we shift it to the image of water which is the other very common image of the Spirit in the Gospel of John um, John 7, Jesus says, whoever comes to me out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. He said this regarding the spirit who, who would come. Like this, this understanding of spirit hadn't been yet released, but it was coming is the sense there in John 7, I think it is. So if you will, what I'm asking you to do during the meditation is that you'd picture your heart under the effects of accusation as a piece of parched land. So any kind of picture of parched land. Emily introduced this last uh, Sunday. I thought we'd just go with it. Any picture of dry, hard earth will do. Um, dried clay, could be parched dirt, could be like a dirt road, a patch of drought, scorched grass. And then if you want to water parched ground so it soaks up the most water, you know, you don't start with a downpour, do you? because it'll just all just run off. Um, and so you would start with like a moistening the ground first, like a mist on the ground or a morning dew, and then you'd increase the amount of water if you wanted it to hold as much water as possible. So that's the image that we'll be using for the meditation, which will begin shortly. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to offer three different ways of receiving the Spirit using this image of watering a dry patch. And, and I'll mention them now so that you can kind of pick one of them that you think kind of fits you. Um, so the first way would be like the early misting phase, like just a light mist coming on this dry patch of earth which represents your heart. Um, and that would that, I think, would be equivalent to simply entertaining the thought in a way that you might even begin to personalize God is my defender not my accuser 
So that first way is going to just be picturing that dried earth, that's your heart, and then more like a morning mist or dew coming on that and using the words, God is my defender, not my accuser. And just letting that into your mind. A second way is to imagine the spirit as more like a gentle rain. So this would represent, you know, letting the thought, God is my defender, not my accuser, kind of sink in a little more deeply so it affect, it wasn't just a thought, but it, it was affecting your feelings. Like, what would I feel like if I really, like, bought that? What, what feelings would it re release in my heart? That would be a second way, and, and that would be done visually with the spirit as a gentle rain coming down on that dry patch. And then the third way is a little more of a communal image, and it's of a steady soaking rain. So you might think of a larger piece of dry earth um, because it's a more communal image. And that's, what, what would it be like to participate in a community of people organized around God understood in this way, as a defender and not as an accuser, and a defender of humanity? Not just a defender of our little group, but a defender of humanity, uh, not an accuser. What would that be like to participate in that kind of a, of a, of a thing? So we're ready to begin now. Um, I'm going to um, rehearse those briefly one more time. Uh, but you can just relax in your seat there. I'd suggest uh, maybe just focusing on, on your breathing as a way of... Um, you know, not silencing, but quieting the other thoughts that are always racing through our minds. Just focus on your breathing. And maybe take a little time as we begin to, um, if you haven't already, just form an image of parched land representing your heart under the influence of accusation. And just literally just picture that image of dry, parched land. What does it look like to you as you imagine it? And now just pick one of those three scenarios to visualize. I'll just repeat them uh, summary form uh, now. The, the first is receiving the spirit on that parched land by um, letting this thought, what if God really wants to be my defender against accusation and not my accuser? What if God has nothing to do with that voice in my head that accuses me of things and it's so paralyzing and just picture that as like a mist coming on that dry land You're just entertaining that thought think of it as a mist coming on that dry land and then that second scenario uh, if you want to go with that is to receive the spirit on the parched ground of your heart by imagining what feelings would be released in you if the spirit really were a defender your defender what what kind of feelings would that unlock for you to, to see God in that way? And you could picture that as a more like a gentle rainfall on that dry patch of land. And then that third image, remember, is a more communal one. So you might picture a larger piece of land that's dry, and you'd picture more like a steady, steady rainfall coming on that land. And that would represent, what would it be like to be part of a a family or a group of people that were committed to this vision of God together. So over the next uh, minute and a half or so, I'll just repeat the phrase, receive the Spirit every 30 seconds and leave you to your meditation.
receive the Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. time receive the Holy Spirit